Parevces, and welcome again to Talking Vartan, the Knights and Daughters of Vartan podcast. I'm Osped David Medzorian of Ararat Lodge Number 1 in Boston. Thanks for joining me. Now, before I introduce you to our distinguished guest for this episode, I want to take just a moment to thank all of you who were kind enough to email me and message me following our last podcast, which recapped the recent Knights and Daughters of Vartan Grand Convocation in Las Vegas. I'm so glad that you enjoyed hearing the program, and it was a real great experience for me to put together because I got to relive all those great times all over again. I also want to thank all of you whom I had a chance to meet for the first time at the convocation or see once again. It was a privilege and an honor to speak to all of you. I'll have more on Grand Convocation 2019 a bit later on and also a look ahead. Yes, I know it's 10 months away, but we'll be looking ahead to Grand Convocation 2020 and the highway to L.A. All of that in just a bit. So ask anyone what it is about the Knights and Daughters of Vartan that makes them stand out among the Armenian organizations in our world today, and most likely they'll tell you it's the people who serve, the men and women who come from all walks of life, from all parts of the world, of all age groups, and who want to make a difference. Our members not only serve the Knights and Daughters, but the entire Armenian community, as well as their own communities, whether that be in Boston, Los Angeles, or anywhere in between. Well, today I'd like you to meet one of those members, an Asped from my own Aradat Lodge Number 1 here in Boston. He lives and works here, but his reporting is read by Armenians around the world. No doubt you've read his work and seen his photographs because this journalist gets around. Aram Arkun is assistant editor-in-chief of the Armenian Mira Spectator, which has been around for 87 years. That's the newspaper's age, not his. He is also executive director of the Tikayan Cultural Association, whose aim, according to its mission, is to preserve the Armenian culture and heritage in the diaspora while promoting cultural, spiritual, and educational ties with our homeland. We'll hear more about the Tikayan Cultural Association later in our conversation. Our interview took place at the home of the Armenian Mira Spectator, the Bicard Building in East Watertown, Massachusetts, located in the heart of the Bay State's Armenian community. If you hear a faint background noise during the course of our conversation, it's because the Bicard Building is now undergoing a major renovation, and they were hard at work on the day that I was there. Now, even though most of us know Aram Arkun in his role as journalist and assistant editor-in-chief at the Mira Spectator, that was not the path he had originally chosen for his life. As he told me at the beginning of our chat, his original plan for his future was to study Armenia's past. I started out as a historian. I studied Armenian history, and I, I'm a doc, I went all the way up to being an ABD, all but dissertation, a doctoral candidate in Armenian history. I took all languages exams, and I've written actually quite a few scholarly works. I worked for many years uh, in uh, New York in the Zohrab Center, which is a research and information center dealing with Armenian history and current uh, affairs. But I've always also been interested in journalism. I've, I had an interest even when I first started college. I worked for my college paper. Uh, over the years, I've contributed to other publications like the Army Reporter in New York. And I was editor-in-chief of the Ararat uh, Quarterly, a cultural publication that AGBU sponsored for many years. And um, I started writing for the Mirror 
on the side uh, also many years ago. And I've always kind of had an interest in journalism because I always was interested in Armenian affairs. And that was one way journalism provides you, provides not only our readers, but me as an individual, uh, kind of access to interesting people, to interesting events. I wouldn't perhaps be able to see close up. And so I'm, I've been very privileged. I've been lucky. And uh, I had the opportunity to, to do this, uh, to expand my involvement in the mirror. And uh, I think it's, uh, I hope it's been interesting for readers. It's certainly been interesting for me. I've met everyone from high-level officials to artists to uh, writers to, you know, to all people from all across walks of life. And I think... Um, I would think that'd be one of the most, if not the most interesting part of this job was, uh, you know, the people that you have come in contact with, uh, well-known or not known, yes. who all in their collective basis make up what is the Armenian community. What's the part of your job you love the most? Well, I think perhaps... Just that, going and and meeting somebody new who's very interesting and finding out how that person uh, does whatever he or she does or going ahead and, you know, it's one thing to uh, read about a politician. It's another to up close, sit down with him and talk with him and see what his ideas really are. And I think that's the most interesting thing. It always gives me great pleasure also to find somebody who's not well-known uh, by most Armenians. And sometimes that brings that person closer to, Armen- to Armenians and also establishes contacts uh, between the community and that person. So I think uh, I enjoy that very much. It's, I guess, the human uh, connection is, is an interesting one. It's different. That part is different from what I do as an academic or what I did as an academic because I dealt with, uh, not only do I often deal with very horrific events uh, of Armenian history, but also I'm not uh, dealing with living, for the most part, with concurrent uh, subjects and living people per se. I'm dealing with documents and this is a different way of approaching life and living life and uh, I uh, I enjoy that. I go, enjoy going to, traveling to these e- events and, and learning uh, things. It's uh, in, in more maybe in some ways more uh, with or broad approach than the academic one which is very specific uh, but it, it has a, a value in and of itself. So I think I think I hope some of that comes across. I tend to write more. I think my style in writing maybe is influenced by my academic background as as well. I prefer to try to give a fuller picture of people or uh, organizations or events. And so I don't generally do really short articles. I like doing more in-depth profiles. And at least the readers that write to me seem to appreciate that because they learn things that um, they wouldn't otherwise. I know some people use that for um, policy-related decisions, even which interests me. Afterwards, I find out, oh, you know, you wrote this one sentence in your interview, and so so I didn't know this, and I use this for this or that. So it, things sometimes have unexpected reverberations. But for me, when I do it, I, I like to think that I'm presenting sort of the essence of what uh, the work of this person or organization. Yes, and I hopefully am doing good enough that people want to uh, 
learn more about that topic. When you were doing your research regarding the events of the late 19th and early 20th century, were you able to discover any inconsistencies or downright inaccuracies with accounts that had been earlier published about what was going on there? I mean, were we getting the full story a hundred years ago, or has it taken all of this time for the true facts to finally... Well, it depends on how you look at it. Certainly, people had the basic information about what was going on, but... But on the other hand, there just had never been enough scholarly work done on these events. And for many years, you know, there were only one or two people working on these things. In other words, one it's one thing to have anecdotal evidence or personal stories, uh, memoirs handed down through families or even in published form. And um, there were even archival materials published like the Blue Book of the English and so forth uh, around that time. But uh, there were only a handful of attempts to synthesize this material. And so many things have come to light that weren't uh, clear earlier. And there's still many points of this period of history that deserve further investigation. Unfortunately, we don't have very, even now we have very few people working on this. It's a difficult field to to get a job in and academia. Academia in general is difficult, but it's particularly difficult in something like this. And we have few institutions. We don't have 50 or 60 Holocaust museums uh, devoted to the Armenian genocide. Uh, we don't have any actually. We don't have. We have maybe one person who's a chairholder who specifically works on this uh, one part of this subject, and then we have a handful of people who do things part time. So it's uh, it's problematic. Even now, there's a lot that we don't know. So honestly, uh, yes, we know enough to say it happened. We can argue with deniers and stuff like that, but. Um, I still believe that it requires a great deal more concerted effort to bring out um, many aspects of these events. Do you believe as an historian and as a journalist that there is still material out there somewhere, whether it is hidden in a government archive or in private hands, whether it be documentation, photographs or any other material that would help bring further illumination to what happened 100 years ago? Yes. I mean, I believe that uh, at the very least in uh, Turkish archives, uh, in, in Turkish military archives and several other state archives, there's probably material that would um, provide more indication of the way, as far as the genocide goes, of how that was organized, possibly even more on uh, earlier events. These, The military archives have largely been closed. Uh, what People like Taner Akcham and uh, uh, others have been able to use are primarily the prime ministry archives, which have Ministry of Interior and other internal telegrams, which are very useful. But the military and also the the archives of the Committee of Union and Progress are very important archives. Uh, thirdly would be uh, private archives of some of the Turkish or Ottoman Turkish leaders 
of the time. Those things would be very, very interesting to have access to. And of course, there's always other stuff that uh, we're unable to find in other Western archives too, or even in Iranian archives, they haven't been well explored. And they had councils or vice councils in a lot of the cities where events were taking place, and they reported on these things. We know that because they're mentioned during some of these events. They're mentioned in 1909 massacres. They're mentioned in during the Hamidian period, and we know during the genocide as well. So these are important sources that really haven't even been uh, tapped. There's plenty of stuff to do that I think would cast very interesting light on on these events. And outside of that, we don't even have that much about Armenian society of the Ottoman Empire. Um, most of you know mod- that period of, of the last three, four hundred years of Ottoman Armenian history or Iranian Armenian history or even in Armenians in the Caucasus, it's really not that well explored. When you today are reporting about the anniversary of the genocide, um, we have uh, commemorations uh, throughout the world, actually, every April 24th, uh, including here in, in Massachusetts. What is it you want people to get from these commemorations and from readings and from eyewitness accounts that uh, will make a difference? Well, that's a good question. I think the role of these commemorations is to indicate, uh, first of all, to um, provide that information or keep the issue in front of non-Armenians who may, as you said, not even be aware that it took place. Uh, secondly, to indicate that there's, there are unresolved issues that stemmed from these events that still affect us today. In other words, this is a living wound. It's not something that's finished. It's not uh, an issue that no longer concerns us. It's affected all of our lives uh, as Armenian Americans because of what and now our grandparents or even great-grandparents uh, have gone through. And um, and secondly, it affects uh, the remnants of the Armenians throughout the world, including the Republic of Armenia. We have unresolved issues that stem from these events with uh, the Republic of Turkey. And so these the events that we have, these state house commemorations in, in Boston, in Massachusetts, and events in different parts of the United States or the world, you know, they serve also to organize us as a community so that we also don't forget. It's easy to say it's been 100 years, but when we all get together also in this way, it gives us a sort of sense of purpose and unity, and it um, reinvigorates our dedication to um, achieving justice for these events. What is justice? It's a very complicated thing, and obviously we can't uh, rectify what's happened to the people of three generations ago, and we may not even be able to... uh, But isn't part of achieving justice getting to the truth or making that truth and make uh, and pe- make aware, people believe it uh, available and aware. Yes, that certainly is is part of what we're doing. And I think it's impressive that we're able to, for example, in Massachusetts, we get the highest officials of the land uh, of the state, uh, the governor, oftentimes two senators, Congress men, congresswomen, uh, state representatives. I mean, we get a very impressive panoply of high-level officials, and that shows that our voice is still being heard here. And the fact that 
who were grandfathered in were able to use this venerable uh, site of the state house to to do this. This is something of high visibility, and I'm proud that uh, we're able to do it. I also happen to serve on that organizing committee. Um, I also, as a member of the Knights of Art, I'm proud that in New York City we have another very visible and and important uh, commemoration in Times Square. In Times Square, yeah. And uh, my only regret is we don't have in Washington a museum or a major institution there because of issues and internal issues of our uh, community. But I think it's something that, you know, I'm not one to say let's forget and go on because we can't forget something that's still with us in a very immediate way and the effects of those things affect us personally as well as um, affect us as, as a community. You talk about community. Let's talk about reporting on what is happening in the community here. And uh, you, you've been doing this now for a number of years and you're the assistant editor-in-chief here at the Armenian Mirror Spectator. And for people who may not know, uh, it is now both a print and digital version. That is correct. Um, and it's been a digital version for how many years now? I would say over 10 uh, years, probably 12, 13 years. We have actually three versions in a certain sense. We have uh, the print. We have a PDF version of the print, which is a weekly, but we also have a website which now offers more than just what you find sometimes in the print. The website will contain the PDF and uh, we individually post many of the articles. But beyond that, now we also have video clips. We've uh, entered into an arrangement with Artsakh Television, so occasionally we have the right to present news from Artsakh or we give English subtitles to some of their reporting. We have a video correspondent in Washington, Haigaram Nahabedyan, who also works for uh, Armenian uh, Hameg of uh, Channel One, uh, Armenian TV, public TV in Armenia. And so we have reporting on anything ranging from soccer matches that Armenia is now in a, a, a competing in to, um, to you know, events uh, in different parts of the world. So we're happy that we can do that. We also are able to give, for example, right now we're in the process of presenting a, a series of photo galleries that uh, are about Armenia that were prepared during a course that uh, Ken Martin, an accomplished photographer from our community, uh, taught. And so in the old days, we wouldn't be able to do that. But now we are able to have those photos up there and people can see Armenia in different ways. So in other words, being able to have the website uh, allows us a third way of reaching people. It changes in some ways the dimensions and the nature of, of our enterprise. And uh, I think it, it gives us the opportunity to be creative in, in many ways. And we welcome also contributions, uh, both video and audio, as well as uh, visual that we can use in that format. It's been a privilege for me to actually be able to contribute some material to the uh, Armenian Mirror Spectator, um, both uh, in terms of articles and photographs. And let me tell you something, which is, this is no surprise to you as a print journalist right now, that writing for print and writing for broadcast are two completely different things. And, you know, you're writing for the uh, for the eye as opposed to writing for the ear. And, uh, you know, so you've really got, it's, I, I've learned that 
the hard way, I guess, but it's been it's been uh, a lot of fun doing so. I was a news writer and I wrote and delivered news for many, many years. It's a very different thing when you are because you are asking people to picture in their minds what you are saying and what you are trying to convey because you don't always have photographs to illustrate it. Go we, ahead. we don't. I mean, right. We toyed with the idea of also doing uh, podcasts or delivering that, you know, reports in that fashion. But we thought in the end that we'll go straight to video because uh, why not when you can combine both. And also the news is in a, you know, concentrated form in, in right. the written thing. But uh, let me add also that I'm pleased that we're able to cover uh, when we talk about community events and events of organizations like the Knights. And one of the roles that all three versions or four versions of the Mere Spectator uh, fulfills is to allow us to stay in touch with what's going on, what our brothers and sisters are doing. So we're happy to, one of the roles we play is to let people know that the Knights had a very successful event, which is and the proceeds, for example, are supporting things in Armenia or that, you know, there's an art exhibition going on or, uh, in other words, support our organizations as much as we can that way. And secondly, to uh, let people know that there are interesting peop Armenians, Ar Armenian-Americans, Armenians around the world doing very important and significant things. So another aspect of the work of the newspaper is to uh, bring to light people that you might not know about uh, when we encounter an Armenian, you know, who's invented something or who's plays a big role in the American government may not have anything to do with Armenians per se, but we'd like our readers to be aware that there are these things going on. So I might do an interview. Sometimes I get them to submit things like just like you might sometimes give us a press release. It's not, a, we're short, we're only uh, two people. Uh, two editors, myself and Ali and Gregorian. So our time is limited. I do try to cover as many uh, events and interview people as possible, but obviously I can only do so much because I also have the other half of my job is tech. Yeah, but I've, I've seen you at a few events there with the laptop over there typing away constantly, and I'm like, he's getting every bloody word. I know he is. And it's, uh, but... Talk about that for a, a little bit in terms of reporting what is happening here in the Armenian community, not just here in Boston, but in Armenia as well and in other parts of the world, because you really do cover the world uh, through the publication. How difficult is it to actually get as the news that you want from Armenia, whether it's being what's happening in the government or in the diaspora and all of that? And, and what steps are taken to make sure that what you're getting is accurate? It's different, obviously, a different process when we cover local or even American events and events in Armenia. And one of the functions, another one of the functions that a newspaper like this has to fulfill is, I think, to in a way be uh, curating information and making accessible Obviously, you could go nowadays and go to Google and type in Armenia and you're going to get all kinds of things. But, you know, not everyone has time to sift through, you know, hundreds of, of articles. And, and one of the things we do is kind of decide on a weekly basis what are the most important stories for that week. And when it comes to uh, the community, sometimes we ourselves make those stories or cover it. But when it comes to Armenia, obviously we're not there. So we either have to have correspondence or we choose from other sources and we kind of curate what 
there is, and we try to do our best. We won't print things that we think are um, not we that we can't uh, find information confirming. To confirm it, yes. yes. So sometimes we'll do a little research behind the scenes to make sure that yes, this is something that really happened, and um, we try. I mean, in a way, luckily we have closer communications now with Armenia. In fact, Armenian officials come here all the time. So we take advantage of that. Uh, so we've interviewed the you know, deputy prime minister, uh, all kinds of ministers and people who are in run centers and uh, uh, And I know that as of, as of this recording, and we're, we're recording this uh, conversation in mid-September, that um, Mr. Pashinyan, I believe, is going to be coming to the United States fairly soon. Yes. Um, He's come, he has two town hall meetings, one in California and one in New York, and we plan to have coverage of, of both. And um, Mr. Pashinyan, uh, I mean, his wife came here to Boston, so we had uh, yes. an interview of, of her as well. So we're trying in that way. But we also are, to be honest, we're still would like to ramp up our coverage of stuff in Armenia. It's hard for us to get good writers who uh, write English well and understand journalism and who are available to write for us. But for now, what we do is we use other sources. And the basic information is is out there, um, and we provide that in both shorts and short uh items as well as sometimes more in-depth coverage so it's a variety of sources Uh, every week we try to have the major events in terms of politics and news as well as changing socio-economic situations how do you make the decision on what needs to be covered should be covered and will be covered. And is it is there a mixture there? Is it like, okay, what do people need to know? What do they want to know? Do we feel they should know? I mean, what yes, goes into there that? is obviously, I mean, if it's something uh, very significant, you know, an important, what we think is an unusual or very interesting event, we'll try to cover it ourselves. Like when City of Smile uh, had a fundraiser and Anna Hagopian came. That was something that that we covered. But, you know, we can't cover every church picnic. We can't cover the bazaar. We can't cover, you know, there are a lot of things, fortunately, that go on in not just in Boston, but uh, in many other communities. And those things will be sporadic. I mean, once in a while, either since we can't go to every single thing, sometimes the organization will send us something. And if we have space, we will try to oblige and we'll try to put their release. But it may, you know, it's, we kind of have to decide first what are the key things for, let's say, this month. And then we we cover ourselves what we can that's in the Boston area. Sometimes uh, I or Ali may travel. I hope I may go to New York, for example, to uh, to hear Pashinyan. And also there's going to be an Ara Guler uh, photography exhibition at the U.S. Customs House that... Uh, uh, the government of Turkey is sponsoring, so that may be something else at the same time that I cover. So those are things that, you know, in this in the East Coast area we cover. Also, sometimes if 
I have, I travel for vacation. Sometimes I take advantage of that. I'll go. Uh-huh. And you may have seen that I've written about I have, I have. Uh, Barcelona or, uh, you know, Italy or things like that. So it all depends on within our resources. We try our best to cover interesting things. And some of it will be a little quirky. Some of it, um, you know, we, when we can't cover things ourselves and it's important, we try to get other sources and then there's a wide range of things that fall into maybe if we can do it or if somebody else, you know, or like you might be kind enough to or interested in, in writing about a certain thing, you know. So we want to have a certain amount of things, for example, on High Point Church, but we can't have every single right. uh, event that they do or every single fundraiser and picnic. Same thing goes for other organizations. I think we you know generally there's an understanding we try to help our nonprofit organizations in the community as much as we can and we cover as reasonably what will be of interest but when things are repetitive that those kind of things you know we're not going to uh cover i don't i don't every bizarre by every yeah, church yeah. right because there's it's not new everybody knows about it but yeah. when there's something different or let's say there's a milestone or let's say every, let's say some priest has, uh, you're not going to cover the 13th anniversary dinner of a priest unless there's something there beyond just that anniversary. But if it's a 50th anniversary or somebody's right. retiring and he's had a very major role in our community, of course, we'd like to cover that. So we have to judge based on each um, week's what's sure. around. And sometimes we just don't, if we don't have news, maybe we will cover one of those things too, just because it's a slow week. We don't but I would also news. assume that there have got to be weeks and maybe maybe this happens more often than I even think where you just have all of these different things and you'd love to be able to put them all in because they're all important in their own way and decisions have to be made, you know, and have well, you that, ever, do you ever hear from people who say, why didn't you cover this well, or that? Well, we usually, if we have the information on the event, whether it's one of us or one of our correspondents who's written it, or we have somebody who was at the event who submitted something on behalf of that uh, event or organization, and we can't put it all in. There are, once in a while, there are times where we, as you said, we can't put everything. Then we'll try to put it in the next couple of weeks, as long as, you know, we try to put it in reasonably close to when the events have taken place. But after a certain point, like we're not going to, let's say six months afterwards, we're not going to write about, again, a special dinner or something that has taken place. We, it's too late. It has to be timely. You know, if there's something, if it's a description about a museum or something that hasn't changed, we could wait a year even because that museum is presumably the permanent exhibit is still the same. But if it's something that is time related or time sensitive, then we try to our best to cover those things and we're never going to be able to cover everything, but we hope that we provide enough of both major events as well as about our institutions and organizations that, that uh, gives our readers both a sense of what's going on here in the U S and, and as well as an understanding of where Armenia and the diaspora are in terms of politics and, and culture. Now, you knew about the Knights of Vartan long before you became a member. What was it about the Knights' mission and its focus that prompted you to join roughly a decade ago? Well, I think one of the great things is that the Knights provide uh, a unifying framework for our community, and I 
think that uh, allows us to kind of put aside sometimes our own sectarian or partisan uh, views and get together with other Armenians and work together for our common goals. And I think um, that is uh, one of the great aspects of the Mission of the Knights that I like very much. And there are a lot of good people working in different parts of, of the U.S. in the Knights. They support many worthy causes. So I think a combination of, of those uh, factors uh, led to my involvement with them. And let's make this very clear. This is a family affair for you because not only are you a member of the Knight, your lovely wife, Dr. Kanadi Garkun, is also the matron or didui of RP Otiag number no. 9 here in Boston and uh, is doing a terrific job. They are, in fact, the daughters here in Boston are also growing both in number and in terms of uh, what they are involved in, the different projects that they're involved in both here and in Armenia. How many times have you been to Armenia yourself? Uh, good question. I think I would have to say probably 10, roughly 10 times. I have to count exactly, but I would say 10 is a rough figure, yes. First time I was there was 2011 family trip. 15 of us went. I had some preconceived notions of what it would be like, every one of which was thrown out the window when I got there. And it was the most incredible trip that I had ever taken. If you can go, should you go? Is it, is it something that as an Armenian, you should try to see at least once in your life, if not more? Yes, I think it is very important for us all to go to Armenia. And I think every time that I go, I see something new, I learn something new, I get connected to it in different ways. Of course, you know, it. many of us or some of us are Western Armenians, our roots are from lands that are no longer in under Armenian control. And, and in fact, are much of the traces of our presence there have deliberately been suppressed. So, uh, you can say that we've lost that part of our homeland. But we're lucky that even if our ancestors were not from, you know, the current territory, the Republic of Armenia and Artsakh, we're lucky that, you know, that is the only place really in the world where there's a, a state and a, a whole uh, territory where everybody is both speaking Armenian, Eastern Armenian, but also uh, living uh perpetuators of Armenian culture and society. So going there can be a very emotional thing for an American Armenian. Oh, yeah. I went the first time uh, as a child with my family, uh, and it was an occasion for my grandmother, who was elderly, to reunite with her cousins, who she hadn't seen since the deportations of the genocide 50, 60 uh, or more years earlier. It was very emotional for them. Uh, and it was Soviet Armenia then, so it was very different. And after that, I, I went as a child, and I felt immediate kinship because I uh, felt everybody is speaking Armenian here, and previously, where I grew up, only relatives or people close to my family would speak Armenian. So I felt almost as if I was you know, related in a certain sense to everyone there. And going back again, you know, I didn't go back until after that, until uh, the fall of the, of Soviet, of the Soviet empire of Soviet Union. And I went the rest of the times I've been in modern independent army, but each time it's been different. Armenia has changed so rapidly and it's just a great, uh, it's a fun place 
very safe place, a place where you can discover... It uh, is fun, by the way. You, you yes. use that word. That's not a word that most people, I would think, would associate with Armenia, but it's a lot of fun. Everybody, whether you are 6 or 60 or 90 or anywhere in between, can find something there that you will appreciate and that you will take home with you and it will stay with you. And it's what's great is that, you know, it's not just... Um, I mean, you become more profound as a person and it doesn't matter what age you are I sent my son for the first time he's 16 years old he went on a on a, a summer three-week trip of combined service and uh, tourism I guess he had he ha- had been there once before as a very young child so he didn't really remember much and that has a deep leaves a deep imprint on you but you also have opportunities now in Armenia because you can do things there it's a small country that in your own field or your in for your interests that you couldn't do anywhere else because the opportunities are greater and you can uh, parlay your skills or your interests there and help Armenia but you're also helping yourself imagine if you're somebody just starting in a career you can volunteer or you can work for a year or two there at a very high level a level that you couldn't enter into in the United States no matter what practically what field you're in you can also uh, get your education there. There are many fine institutions of education. You can pursue that. You can be in the IT field. There are so many things. People make wine. They've dreamed, dreamt about having their own winery or their own brand of wine. So people are just doing go to like that. There so go. there's almost anything. It's very, it's very interesting. It's it's not just museums. There's it's a living breathing society. People are very uh, friendly and you don't even have to know Armenian, although obviously it's great if you do. Mm-hmm. Well, man, my Armenian was pretty poor at the time. And yes, I was grateful that so many people there knew English and the food, oh my God, it was to die for. Some of the best lamb I've ever had in my life. And even the the fruit, the strawberries and all of that, it's all organic over there. They don't inject it with a hundred things like we do over here to make them grow massive. But they're small, but my God, the flavor just explodes in your mouth. It's an incredible place to visit. Look ahead, our last question, five years from now, where do you see the state of the Armenian Mirror Spectator, of of journalism here in the United States with regard to reporting on the Armenian community? Will it change? Yes, it is changing. Obviously, having uh, social media and having uh, a decrease in People used to reading newspapers in general in the West, in the United States and elsewhere uh, throughout the world already has made a, a huge difference. That's obviously why we switched. We're putting more emphasis on the website and our digital version now. I think that will continue. Uh, how it will continue, whether you know we may continue to switch more and do more video uh, visual type material because people want that more, that's possible. Um, I think it really depends on what the demands of our community are here and how the United States itself changes, how the mirror does. But one thing I can tell you is that we're determined to continue in one way or another, both um, fulfilling the 
goal of providing information about Armenians, bringing Armenians together, and um, reporting on it as best as we can. I would also like to mention uh, the Taycan Cultural Association briefly because that uh, half of my work revolves around this organization too, and we both help sponsor the newspaper, but we also have um, seven or uh, more uh, centers in the United States and Canada, places like Montreal or uh, three chapters in Los Angeles, including a center. We have theater groups and uh, we have all kinds of we have other newspapers like in Montreal, Abaca. Uh, so um, the our traditional organizations, um, whether in the Boston area or elsewhere, you know, um, also are changing over time because the traditional type of community life where, where people would uh, spend all their free time, they would come from work and they'd immediately go to whatever organization or church uh, that they were involved in and, and spend most of their free time there. It's changed now because life is, is very different for all of us. So we're trying to find a way that appeals to you know, younger generations of, of Armenians here. And we are uh, doing that in uh, ways that we hope will help preserve uh, our identity, but also give something good, uh, enrich us all. I think that we're lucky that we're Armenians. We're lucky that we have this ancient heritage, this culture, which is a living and vibrant one today and one that we can draw on to create new things. And I hope that both uh, through Taikeon and through the newspaper, we play a role in, in encouraging and and moving forward in, in that process. And the Knights of Artan, of course, also have a big role to play in our, and have been playing a big role in our community in supporting all this. And I hope to be able to help them as well. My special thanks to Asbed Aram Arkun of Ararat Lodge No. 1, the Assistant Editor-in-Chief of the Armenian Mira Spectator and Executive Director of the Tikayan Cultural Association. I really appreciate him letting me record our interview at the Bicard Building. It's a place I haven't seen the inside of in probably more than 25 years, and I'm looking forward to seeing it once the renovation is complete. And I'm sure that Aram and his colleagues are waiting for it to be complete as well. By the way, although the offices of the Mirror Spectator are in Watertown, Massachusetts, the newspaper is actually printed in Wakefield, about 15 miles to the north. Now, I had mentioned at the beginning of this podcast that there would be more about our just-completed Grand Convocation, as well as news about next year's gathering in Glendale, California. There are two videos that are now online which showcase through photographs, the recent Grand Convocation in Las Vegas. One is about 30 minutes long, while the second one is about one-tenth of that length, about three minutes. The longer version covers every aspect of the convocation in great detail and includes far more people, while the shorter version touches on just the highlights, and you can see them both, either by visiting the Talking Vartan Facebook page, the Knights and Daughters of Vartan Facebook page, the Knights and Daughters of Vartan website at kofv.org and the Knights and Daughters of Vartan channel on YouTube. You see, there's no excuse for not seeing the videos because Kohar Palyan and I have posted them everywhere. Now, have you given any thought to your summer plans for next year? 
Well, I know a few knights and daughters in California that are giving a lot of thought to next summer. And that is the committee planning next summer's grand convocation in Glendale, California. And they're hoping you'll be taking the highway to L.A. for Grand Convocation 2020. Now, you may be thinking, oh, that's 10 months away. I'm sure they're still planning everything. Oh, contraire. You can, in fact, book your room right now and at a terrific rate, which I'm not allowed to announce online. But trust me, you are going to love it. The Hilton Hotel in Glendale, or to give it its formal name, the Hilton Los Angeles North Glendale and Executive Meeting Center is where Grand Convocation 2020 will take place. It's right in the heart of California's Los Angeles Armenian community. There'll be plenty to see and do, including a tour of Warner Brothers Film Studios. Now, the dates for the convocation, as advertised, are July 14th through the 19th, but... And here's the good news. The convocation room rates are in effect beginning July 11th and running through the 23rd. So come early, stay later, bring the family and have a ball. You can book right now by going to the Convocation 2020 link on the Knights and Daughters of Vartan website at kofv.org, going to the main drop-down menu and clicking on the Grand Convocation 2020 link. It'll all be there. I've booked already, and I hope that you will too. It's going to be a great grand convocation. Of course, you should always check out the Knights and Daughters of Vartan Facebook page for photographs and information submitted by our communications liaison and by lodges and otyags from across the United States. It's a great resource for all of us, as is the Knights and Daughters of Vartan website. And I know I keep giving you the website address, but I want to make sure that you remember it at kofv.org. While there, you can read and download current and past issues of the Avaride, our Knights and Daughters of Vartan digital and print publication. Now, the website, the Avaride, and the Knights and Daughters of Vartan Facebook page, along with our YouTube channel, are all maintained by our terrific communications liaison in Yerevan, Kohar Palian. As always, I'd love to hear your comments and questions about the Talking Vartan podcast, as well as suggestions for a future episode. If you would like to have your own lodge and otyag profiled on an upcoming program, I would love to hear from you. You can contact me directly through the Talking Vartan Facebook page. Just click the Send Message tab in the column labeled About, or you can send me an email directly at TalkingVartanPodcast at gmail.com. I'll give that to you one more time. TalkingVartanPodcast at gmail.com. Remember, you can listen to and download all current and previous podcast episodes by visiting the Talking Vartan Facebook page, or you can hear us using SoundCloud or iTunes. Just go to the iTunes podcast page and type in Talking Vartan. As always, special thanks to Mal Barsamian for our theme music, Lorki Lorki, from his album One Take, Armenian Dance Tunes. Talking Vartan, the Knights and Daughters of Vartan podcast is the exclusive property of the Knights and Daughters of Vartan and Osped David Medzorian. Any reproduction or broadcast of this production without the expressed written permission of both parties is prohibited. That'll do it for this edition of the Talking Vartan podcast. Thanks so much for listening. It was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who said that everybody can be great because everybody can serve. Thank you for serving as a knight or daughter of Vartan. I'm Osped David Medzorian, Nevada Lodge number one in Boston. Till next time, Sedesu Tune. <laughs>